Hey, so growing up, I was a diehard Michael Jordan fan. He was the greatest athlete who ever lived. Anyone attest to this, right? bunch of youngsters in here. You guys don't even know who he is. So when I was growing up as a kid uh, in the late 80s, I used to watch Michael Jordan play and watch him dominate, and I loved everything about it. And one of the things I specifically loved about the Chicago Bulls is they were one of the first, maybe the first team, uh, the first sports team to make the starting lineups iconic. Did you know this? So um, when, when uh, games would play, I would always tune in like five minutes before the game would start because they'd do the starting lineups. And what would happen is in the stadium, the, the lights would all go off and then the lasers and the lights would start to go around the room. This was, this was uh, great technology back in the 80s, by the way. The lasers are going around the room and then the song Sirius would start to play. You know the song that plays before the Nebraska Tunnel Walk? That's the song that would play from, they stole it from the Chicago Bulls, by the way, late 80s, early 90s, and the bass would be pumping, and they would get ready to go, and and the announcer would come over the loudspeaker, and he would say, and now, the start, I'm not going to keep going, because it's going to be awkward if I keep going with that loud, raspy voice, but he he goes through their team, I kind of sounded actually like him, you should go back and listen to it, but anyway, so, so, he would announce the team one by one. The crowd was getting ecstatic, all worked up into a frenzy, and the energy and anticipation would grow as he introduced the four first players, and then he would get to the last player, save the best for last, and he would say, a 6'6 guard from North Carolina, number 23, and he would yell, Michael Jordan, and the crowd would, of course, go crazy. Everyone was loving the moment. And the cool thing is, is uh, my siblings and I, we saved up uh, a few extra dollars when I was a junior in high school. And we actually road trip to Chicago and we got to see Michael Jordan play in his last season and one of his last home games that he played. Uh, we got to see it live. And so we got to, to see the lights turn down, albeit we were in the very last row. We were standing room only. Literally, we didn't have seats. We were standing behind the last row, but we were in the building. The lights went off. The announcer came on. He was yelling like crazy and everyone went ecstatic. And it was just cool to be able to see something that you've been watching on TV, cheering for, for a lifetime, but to be able to see it in person. Now this sense of anticipation, this moment before the moment, the introduction before the showdown, when the actual game takes place, that is kind of the scene that we have here in Mark chapter 11 with the triumphal entry. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, and it's the intro to Jesus before the showdown of Easter weekend that's going to come the week following this. And this crowd is kind of similar to an NBA game. You have this crowd that's worked into a frenzy. There's excitement, there's anticipation in seeing the greatest of all time. And I'm not talking about Michael Jordan, they're talking about Jesus here. They're looking forward to seeing Jesus, that the Messiah is going to come and save the people. And this passage, it not only serves as an introduction for Jesus before the showdown on Easter weekend takes place, but it also serves as an introduction, a further introduction into who Jesus actually is. And this moment for Jesus is really like a no-turning-back kind of moment. He's gone public. There's no way of going back. But 
there was something that was off about this processional, about this entry. There was, a, there was a problem that existed, you see, because the people who were worked up and shouting at Jesus and praising Jesus, uh, they didn't really understand who Jesus was. You see, they were looking for a, a Savior to come on their terms, But as Jesus was coming in in the triumphal entry, it was a grand proclamation of what his terms were. So these these followers or these uh, these people, these Jews who were shouting at Jesus, they they really um, they really show us something in this text, and it shows us that if you get who Jesus is wrong, you get the whole thing wrong altogether. And the reason I know that is because if you fast forward this story one week, the same uh, raucous crowds that were yelling Hosanna one week are the same crowds that are yelling crucify him the next week. This is important stuff. So what we're going to learn about Jesus in our passage um, is that um, we're going to learn about him on his terms. And the call from chapter 11 that we're going to see in this triumphal entry story is one that very basically says, follow him on his terms. This is who I am. Follow me on my terms. And so we're going to track this story in three parts. First, we're going to see Jesus planning the setup for this whole thing. And then we're going to see the people's misconception how they kind of messed up what was actually going on. Uh, And then we're going to see uh, Jesus' actual purpose. We're going to see what he's actually trying to do. So first we're going to see his planning, then the misconception, then the purpose. So we're going to start in Mark chapter 11, and we're going to reread some of these first verses that kind of serve as the setting or the setup for this situation. It says in chapter chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany... Uh, At the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. Now, in this scene, there is a plan that Jesus is carrying out. And if you read this passage, you can see the immediate plan that he's trying to carry out in this day. But he's trying to carry out a, a larger scale plan that's going on. But, but before we get to that, let me give you some background facts as to what's going on here. So, so uh, in this passage, uh, it's one week approximately before Easter weekend, and and this, the the holiday of the Passover is just starting. And so, what that meant is that Jews from all over would make a pilgrimage into the city of Jerusalem. So the city swelled in size to two to three times its normal population, and it was abuzz with excitement during this time. And so, Jesus, amidst all of this, he had a plan. And his plan was to get onto a donkey that had never been ridden and ride into the city. Now you hear that and you're like, wait, wait, why is that the plan? What's the point of this? Well, I'm going to get to the why behind it in just a second. But um, 
for a second, I want us to just be in awe of, of the planning that went into this. So with the whole donkey and the disciples and going to get the donkey interchange, there's been a lot of people who have talked about this and who have given theories as to how exactly this has happened. A lot of people would say or think that Jesus, uh, he supernaturally knew that a donkey was in this little town of Bethany. And so he sent his disciples just because he had uh, you know, this knowledge from God and he's going to send them there. And then by the supernatural power of God, they would just let him take the cult and they're going to be good to go from there. Now, that could have happened. Some people think that Jesus, uh, because he was familiar with this little town of Bethany, two miles outside of Jerusalem, they think that, that he knew that there was a cult there because he'd walked the streets before. He'd seen it uh, standing there, tied up, and so he sent the disciples to that exact place. And uh, the men said, okay, sure, take it. Some people, that could have been true as well. Some other people uh, say that, that they think that the owner of this donkey was a friend of Jesus, maybe a follower of Jesus, and he could have been in that crowd uh, to begin with before the triumphal entry, and he had maybe kind of pre-approved him to go and get his unridden donkey. And so they send in these, uh, these followers or these disciples of Jesus to go get him that way. Now, all of these could be true, but either way, clear back in Zechariah 9.9, some 500 years before this, This is what we know is true. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Listen to this. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, however Jesus arranged the whole getting the donkey interchange, we don't exactly know, but this is not just a flippant plan. He had foreknowledge. He was meticulously planning this. Jesus himself planned exactly the date when he wanted to come to earth. He planned exactly the time around age 30 when he would start his ministry. He knew and understood exactly the tension between the powerful Romans of the day and the weaker Jews. All of the the miracles and the teachings and the exorcisms and and healings that he did, he knew exactly what what he wanted to do with whom and how he wanted to do it. And he carried out exactly how he wanted to do it. And amidst that, he knew that he wanted to keep his identity hidden that whole time. And then when the time was right in all of history... He fulfilled the prophecy of getting a donkey in the small town of Bethany to come riding into into the city so that he would set off the Jewish authorities, so that his life and claims would come to a head, so that there would be a crowd that turned against him and eventually they would kill him. Providence, the details don't sneak past Jesus. There is not a promise or a prophecy from the Old Testament that exists about Jesus' saving mission that he ignored or missed. There is not a detail or situation in his lifetime that got out of control that put him up in arms where he didn't know what to do. Our Savior Jesus works with precision. His timing is impeccable and he carries out his salvation plan with accuracy. And if you're here today and you're up in arms about your current situation saying, Jesus, what are you doing? 
Jesus, it's about time to come to the rescue. You need to do this right now. Or Jesus, I'm coming to the end of my rope. You need to tie these loose ends together. Some of you are thinking, man, Jesus, my family is falling apart. You've got to do something about it now. Jesus, I've been trying to get pregnant over and over and over for months, years. You've got to do something about this now. Jesus, we, we, we have such financial strain. We can't keep going on like this. You have to do something about this. Now, if things are getting out of control, I want to remind you that as we see in this story that the redemptive plan of Jesus was carried out perfectly into the most minute detail of getting an unridden donkey in a small nobody town of Bethany 2,000 years ago to the most minute detail of carrying out his redemption plan. And if he can do that, then he is carrying out his redemption plan with precision and accuracy in your lives this morning. I believe that more often than not, the call in these situations of doubts is be, to being up in arms is just to, to turn to him and, and to say yes. To trust him, to follow him. If he tells you to do something as strange as going into a random town and getting a donkey, then the response should be yes. Because he knows what he's doing. He's capable. He's trustworthy. His timing is impeccable. The calling is to follow him on his terms. Now, as we continue in the story past this kind of setup, past these setup verses, I want you uh, to notice what Jesus is doing versus what the people are hoping for. There's a little bit of a deviation in the path. And so I call this section a misconception because what these Jews thought Jesus was, what he actually was, is a little bit different. So let's start in verse 7 and let's read this. It says, in verse 7, And they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it, and many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, let's talk about uh, a misconception for a second. So he gets up and gets on this donkey here, and he's about to go public. But have you noticed, as we've been studying through Mark, that almost every time when Jesus does something, when he does a miracle, a teaching, or whatever, he tells people to not say anything about it, to not tell anyone about it. But here, there's a change in plan. He's going public with who he is. And this is pretty interesting because this whole city of Jerusalem is, is buzzing with excitement. They're, they're wondering, as I did more and more research, you, you find out, and as you, even as you read this story in the other Gospels, you find out that the city was building with anticipation. They knew Jesus was close. They knew he was a couple miles away, and they were asking, is he going to come? It's Passover. Is he going to make an appearance? Is this the Messiah who has come? Is this miracle worker Jesus going to show up and do something? Now, if you read this story in John, it's interesting because you find out that just moments before this, days before this, Jesus, this is when Jesus actually, uh, he raised Lazarus from the dead in the small town of Bethany, just two miles away. And you find in that account in John that the chief priests uh, get so upset with Jesus and they want to put, they want to just squash all of this. And so they go on mission 
to actually not only kill Jesus, but also to kill Lazarus, to put, Lazarus, to put all this Messiah talk to bed. Now, a side note, killing Jesus didn't actually end this Messiah talk. It only got it started, right? But there was this crazed excitement over Jesus. And the Jewish public, they were ready to be saved. And so what it says that they did in this passage, you notice that it said that they put cloaks on the don- they put their cloaks on the donkey, and then Jesus got up on it. And then it says they put their cloaks on the road uh, so that the donkey with Jesus could, could ride over it. And, and just the basic idea behind this was just a, uh, laying your cloak down for someone um, was an act of submission or humility. And so you think, oh, they're they kind of got it right so far. They're submitting to Jesus. They're humbly saying, okay, Jesus, here we are. But then the next thing that they do is they get leafy branches or palm branches. And you see they, they get these branches and they wave them or they lay them down in front of them. Now, this starts to get a little bit more clear as to what these Jewish people are thinking because about 150 years before this day, There was a rebel Jewish army led by a leader named Judas Maccabeus. This was between the Old and the New Testament. And Judas Maccabeus led this rebel Jewish army over several victories, eventually removing uh, their enemies from the city of Jerusalem, their capital city, and he restored uh, the city and restored the worship in the temple uh, back to God. And so he was a hero in that day. And when Judas Maccabeus had this military victory and he rode back into the city, do you know what they waved at him? And do you know what they laid in front of him? They laid palm branches or leafy branches. He was a powerful leader, a victorious leader. So you know what these oppressed Jews were hoping for in our story today? A powerful leader, a military and political leader, a victorious leader who could save them from this Roman occupation and maybe turn them into a a power, restore their nation to greatness. Um, and, And so when you see them yelling, Hosanna, this word that means save, or like save, I pray, or save us now, when they're yelling, Hosanna, they're waiting for Jesus to come and save them now, but they thought Jesus would come in power in a way that he would build an earthly kingdom. And maybe in a way that would take away their hardships, a way that would maybe make their life a little bit more comfortable for them to live, maybe a way that would free them from some of the trials that they had been suffering, maybe rise them up to a more powerful and prominent place. You see, Jesus riding on a donkey was more than just a fulfillment of a prophecy in Zechariah 9.9, but it told us what he was like that he was a humble king, willing to ride in, not on a huge white war horse, but on a donkey. He's a humble king coming in peace. Now, were these guys, were they worshiping the real Jesus? The answer to that is no. Because these people would pick and, pick and choose the scriptures they wanted to believe about Jesus, this Messiah that would come. They loved the scriptures about him being a ruling king, but they ignored the scriptures about him being a suffering servant. They wanted him to deliver their country, but they didn't want him to mess with their hearts. And I think that we do this. I think for us, uh, we a lot of times want Jesus to deliver us from our circumstances. We want him to, to come and save us and make our lives easier, but not necessarily at the cost of messing with our hearts, right? I think some of us worship kind of different versions of Jesus, 
Some of us worship kind of a, a vending machine Jesus. We worship him for what he gives to us, right? We'll put in our, our dues, our little quarter of our Bible reading and our prayer and maybe loving some uh, loving neighbors and, and maybe going on a mission trip. And when we do that, we believe that in turn, God deserves or we deserve for God to give us something to make our life better. Or if we want to make our life better, maybe I'll do a few more things for God and then he'll spit out some blessings my way, right? He kind of Sounds a little ri- bit ridiculous, but, but how many of us feel like it's unfair when God doesn't give us what we want? When his timing isn't our timing and he makes us wait, or when our trials seem a little bit worse than the people who are around us. You see, vending machine Jesus supposedly meets our needs on our terms when we behave, but that's not how the real Jesus operates. Uh, some of us kind of worship a, a Sunday morning Jesus. In other words, we come in here and we get all excited and we can talk the Christian talk and we can look the part, we can say the Christian lingo, and we look like we fit in perfectly when we come in here. But for some reason, when we walk out the door after Sunday gets over, there's an incongruence between what our life actually looks like the other six days of the week and, and what it looks like when we're here. We're performing when we're here to to fit in, to get some sort of acceptance. But that's not the real Jesus. Uh, Some of us worship uh, kind of a friendly neighbor Jesus. So let me tell you my my role in my neighborhood. I'm kind of the helpless, unskilled neighbor on our street. And see, (laughs) thank you. And by that, I mean I'm fine until I need to get something fixed. And I have to go and borrow a tool if I know what to do with it when I get it, or borrow a stepladder from a neighbor. Or if my mower breaks down, I know the first thing I need to do is wheel it across the street to our neighbor's garage so that he can fix it, or maybe just let me borrow his, right? But if you worship friendly neighbor Jesus, more often than not, you're okay without it. You don't need your neighbors every day, only kind of when you get in trouble, right? And you could actually go weeks, days or weeks without consulting him. Because we're pretty self-sufficient until something falls apart, of course. And when we're in need, then we go back and we come knocking on Jesus' door like a friendly neighbor by maybe praying or reading our Bible a little bit more to hopefully get some answers when we're in need. Man, there's so many different distortions that we could talk about. Some of us um, worship kind of a soapbox issue, Jesus. We have something that we are passionate about. We lead with that, and then we find some verses that support that, and and we go out and and talk about this and preach this, and sometimes it's really good things, but we also have a tendency at times to ignore the other hundred things that Jesus says, that Jesus is passionate about, that he loves and cares, and he wants us to form and shape into. I think we do the same thing as these Jews do in this passage. We're trying to create Jesus in our image, in our likeness, not the other way around. So he saves us on our terms. So he follows our rules. The Jews were waiting for a political, military king to free them. And Jesus is making a statement in this entry on a donkey that he was a different kind of king. It's not that kings didn't ride on donkeys. They at times did. But when they did, it meant that they were coming in humility and they were coming in peace, not in war. He was leading by serving and loving, not by fighting. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever 
played a simple board game like Candyland or Shoots and Ladders with like a three or a four-year-old, maybe a five-year-old before. Anybody before? Okay, this is uh, my life at times when I'm home with the kids. So I have <clears throat> a four-year-old son. He's our oldest named Nash, and, and he uh, one of his favorites is Candyland. And so if you remember how this works, there's little colored spaces all the way up, and the idea is to get to the castle at the end, and you draw a card, and then it has a color on it, and then you go to the next spot that that's, that is that color. But Nash, when you don't keep him accountable, and he starts, and he draws a blue card, he will conveniently skip over the first blue, and then find a blue like halfway up the board. He says, okay, blue, and he puts it on there. Then it comes around to his turn again. He goes, oh, double yellow. And he finds one yellow and conveniently goes all the way up to the board to the yellow that's right by the castle. So the next turn, he is guaranteed to win, of course. Sometimes I let him go and I let him make up his own rules and I let him win. But there will come a day when somebody is going to crack down on him and following the rules. And it may be me next time we play because I'm kind of sick of losing. But... Someone is going to crack down and he is going to realize that he is in for a rude awakening, that he doesn't win every time, that there is rules to the games. There's a thing that this, there's, there's ways that this game works. And I think this is a little bit how we treat Jesus. We try and manipulate him so it works out best for us. But the problem is sometimes life cracks down on us. What I mean by that is sometimes we realize, oh no, we need a real Savior in this situation. And trials get so difficult that we're not able to do it on our own, and we're like, vending machine, Jesus doesn't, just doesn't cut it in this situation. Or, or we may be entrenched in sin and just longing for some sort of freedom from something, and we realize, wow, friendly neighbor Jesus doesn't cut it in this situation. We need a real Savior. Or maybe you uh, get into a, a situation where you're just um, overwhelmed with just discontentment and, and, and bitterness and hopelessness, and you realize, man, I need something more fulfilling than the faux Jesus that I created in my head. I need a real Savior. I need something outside of me, something bigger, something better than me. And in that moment, the invitation to follow Jesus, the real Jesus, will still be there. I'm thankful for a Savior, humble, humble enough to come to heaven to, from heaven to earth, humble enough to ride in on a donkey, humble enough to go to the cross on our behalf, and humble enough to pursue us and welcome us back with open arms when we get him wrong over and over and over again. Are you seeing how you maybe have a misconception about Jesus? Is he maybe calling you to follow him? The call is to follow Jesus on his terms. So there's one more section that we're going to look at. And this section helps us understand Jesus' purpose. And so we saw the setup. We saw kind of the misconception of of what's wrong. And now we're going to see Jesus' true purpose in this last section. So let's read in verse 9 and 10 together. And we can see this. It says, "And uh, And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, 
although these people uh, may have been misdirected, uh, Jesus still accepts their claims, their worships, their worship anyway. And I think the reason is, is because what they're saying in word is actually right. It's actually correct about him. So they're shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now in those days during Passover, when these, these Jewish pilgrims would come into the city to celebrate, uh, that was actually a common like, greeting that they would yell at people. Blessed, are you come, or blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, hey, you're coming here in the name of God. Hey, you're blessed because of that. Like, that's a good thing. But I think in this situation that there is a deeper richer, more meaningful, or more meaningful purpose behind this, because it's describing Jesus' actual purpose, that he came in the name of the Lord. He is the Lord coming in the name of the Lord, and he's going to change everything through his death and resurrection. The next thing that they talk about in this passage is they say, blessed is the coming kingdom. This is true about Jesus because he was bringing a kingdom and he may not have been doing so on a white horse with a sword with the idea of military victory in the moment, but he is going to and has brought a spiritual kingdom where he becomes king and he lands in the hearts of men and women and sets them free. And how is he going to accomplish this? He's going to do it through saving them. And as the people shout, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save, I pray. The shout of Hosanna described the work that he was going to do. He was going to save the people, not of their own doing, but of his work. James Edwards, a scholar on Mark, he, he says this. He says, Mark's account of the triumphal entry is noteworthy for what does not happen. The whole scene comes to nothing. The crowd disperses as mysteriously as it assembled. Mark is warning against mistaking enthusiasm for faith and popularity for discipleship. Jesus is not confessed in pomp and circumstance, but only at the cross. You see, the biggest misunderstanding of the Jewish crowds in this triumphal entry story was that they thought they needed to be saved from the things out there. But when in reality, the things that they needed to be saved from were in here. The enemy that they were shouting Hosanna against to be saved from were actually their own hearts. It was actually their own disobedience to God. And the very last verse of this section says something quite interesting. Verse 11, it says, And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. This is Jesus. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Kind of odd. It's like, what is he doing here? So this cheerleading section, uh, this this parade, had these people had dispersed. They were gone. They showed their true colors. They weren't actually followers of Jesus. Then when Jesus goes into the temple, he is assessing what's happening here. He's assessing if true worship of the people, true worship of God is happening amongst these people. And as you read on in chapter 11, you'll find out that Jesus doesn't like or doesn't approve of what he sees. So he left the temple that night knowing that in a week he would create a new center of worship. Through his death and resurrection, he would become the new 
temple. And those who um, followed him would become true disciples, the center of worship uh, for all true disciples. And if we are worshipers, we will follow him and worship him on his terms. Providence Jesus has had humility in coming toward us, allowing us to, to be showered with his grace and mercy, allowing us to admit our sins and shortcomings and to be able to pick up our cross and follow him. And the question is, if he's looking in on our church, if he's looking in at us as individuals, does he see true followers? Does he see true worshipers? Are we more like the crowd that, that disperses when times get a little tough? Or are we truly following him, picking up our cross and following him? <clears throat> There's a um, former professor and, and poet um, whose name is Joseph Brodsky. He's a Russian-American poet um, who taught in some American universities. Um, and he, uh, I, I read this earlier this week. Um, in an address that he had to a group of students from Dartmouth College. And uh, these students from Dartmouth, if you think about who he's talking to, they're the best and the brightest. You know, they're Ivy League kids who seemingly had the world at their fingertips. And, and he's talking to them about their future. And while you think he might deliver this exciting speech, maybe based on his own uh, sad uh, sadness in life, he delivers a sobering speech that kind of describes life on your terms, not on Jesus' terms. He says, you'll be bored with your work, your spouses, your lovers, the view from your window, the furniture, the wallpaper in your room, your thoughts, yourselves. Accordingly, you'll try to devise ways to escape. You may take up changing jobs, residences, company, country, climate. You may even take up promiscuity, alcohol, travel, drugs, cooking lessons, psychoanalysis. You may love all of these together, and they may work for a while until the day when you wake up in your bedroom amid a new family with a different wallpaper in a different state and climate with a heap of bills from your travel agent and your shrink, yet with the same stale feeling toward the light of day pouring through your window. The question for us is, what is our life all about? What are you living for? Have you settled for a lesser life? Or have you settled for a lesser version of Jesus when the king of the world, the God of this universe, wants to be your friend and he's moving toward you and inviting you in? 2,000 years ago, Jesus boldly but humbly rode in on a donkey to have a clash not only with the Jewish authorities, but to set off a series of events that would lead him to have a cosmic clash with sin and death. And you know what? He won. He had a victory over that. He suffered and died in our place so that we could experience him. He rode into town for us. And now, because he has achieved that victory, you can be forgiven. You can be set free. And he's inviting us to follow him. He may demand it all, but he gave it all for us. He gives us life 
now. And he gives us life in the future. And this isn't any ordinary life. This is the life described in John 10.10 where he says that we may have life to the full. Life abundantly. So Providence Church, could we be people who follow him on his terms? He's offering life now and life later. And so as a step in obedience, as a step of following Jesus, um, we want to take communion here this morning. And so I want to invite up our band, and I want to invite up uh, the communion servers. And as they come forward, um, I just want you to consider, as you think about all of the circumstances that you're going through. Maybe they're, as Gabe said, maybe they're great. Maybe they're not so great. Maybe it's somewhere in the middle. But I want you to consider how you may maybe have not been following Jesus on his terms and take this as an opportunity to come to the cross on his terms where he's inviting you to shower his mercy and grace on you. As we take communion here, I'd love to invite any uh, followers of Jesus to come um, who would claim Jesus as their Lord and Savior to come forward and take communion with us. And if you are not a follower of Jesus, I'd love to invite you uh, to remain seated. But if you want to come forward and take communion, uh, the band is going to lead us. There's two lines and there's also uh, a gluten-free option in the back if you need that. But allow this as we take communion together to be a step forward, a physical step forward of discipleship, of following him. So let's worship Jesus as our Lord who demands it all, but he gave it all. Let's follow him as we take communion.